When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. This is episode number 11 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, April the 12th. First, I have a great chat with Yaniv Bernstein, Airtasker's VP of Engineering. And then I have a terrific chat with RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson, analysing the Morrison government's election budget. But now, let's listen to Yaniv Bernstein. Yaniv, uh, you've started to do as an engineer at Airtasker. Tell me, how has it grown so spectacular? So I think, you know, one of the things that it's, it's managed to do is reduce the friction for people who want to have uh, a simple or, or a more complex or a more exotic uh, job done. Uh, I think, in a sense, it's, it's an evolution of uh, listing-type products, uh, but with the power of technology, we've made it much easier for someone who wants uh, something simple done, like some gardening uh, to get that job done without the need for, for using a, an agency as a middleman. Um, and that means that it allows you to get the person you want with the reputation and the reviews that you want. Uh, and at the same time, it unlocks the ability to get more interesting tasks completed. For example, if you want a song composed for your wife for your wedding anniversary or that sort of thing, 
Uh, that used to be a task that was quite difficult to get done simply because you couldn't find that sort of person to do it. Uh, and, and now with Airtasker, that's actually quite a straightforward exercise. So I, I think, uh, you know, with, with the technology that's available to us now, uh, Airtasker just fills a, a myriad different needs in people's lives. And I think that's really the key to its success. Oh, this is quite extraordinary because what it does is it actually feeds into the growing freelance economy, people who are actually living in the gig economy, living from gig to gig. Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things that's really great about it is it actually allows new types of activity to be added to the economy, right? So the, the example that I use, if, if you're a, a, someone who's a song composer in the past, you might find that that's a, a passion of yours, but you can't get paid for it, right? So it has to remain a hobby. Uh, but But now... You know, our mission statement is to empower people to realize the full value of their skills, and, and that's something that we're really passionate about. Um, so now this person can potentially make quite a, a decent income doing what they really love, what they're really good at, what they care about. Um, and so, yeah, I think it, it is uh, part of this movement um, to allow people to, to effectively run you know, small businesses and be self-employed or to, to earn some income on the side. So how much? Uh, so it's very much a volume game for these uh, for these people participating in their, in our tasker, isn't it? It's about how many jobs they get uh, to justify to belong to it, uh, isn't it? Uh, not necessarily. I think we we see like the full profile of taskers. There are people who actually make a living working full time on air tasker, and you'll get people like uh, you know handy handy people, tradies who, who find Airtasker to be a great platform for what they're doing, uh, removalists, uh, people like that. Uh, and at the other end, you, you'll get people who like to get a little bit of pocket money or get some flexible work around other commitments in their lives, such as parenting or studying, who might do things like assembling IKEA furniture on the weekend for people. Um, so it's, it's very much not about volume necessarily, but about ease of of customer acquisition um, in the sense of if you want work, you want to be able to find the right sort of work quickly without a lot of uh, effort, and, and Airtasker enables that. So how many people are actually participating in Airtasker now? How many How many people do, how many handymen, freelancers are on Airtasker at the moment? Uh, I'm afraid I don't have the exact numbers for you at the moment, but it's, it's many thousands. We get you know, thousands and thousands of uh, jobs being posted and and completed every week, uh, and we have you know a very kind of rich uh, community of taskers um, who are able to to fulfil a lot of those needs from the more common ones uh, to to those more unusual ones, right? So uh, for us, having an engaged community of taskers who who are keen to to get the, the type of work that's on offer on the platform is, is very important for us and something that we invest in. So what kind of jobs are available on Airtasker? Well, uh, it's, you know, a very wide variety of jobs. Uh, basically anything you could imagine, uh, as long as limited by our, our terms of service, obviously. Um, things need to be legal and, and decent. But, uh, you know, we, we get a huge variety of different jobs. Uh, and like I said, there are a few key uh, industry verticals for us where there is quite a large volume of work. Um, and, you know, some of those are house cleaning, home removals, gardening, uh, so quite a lot of uh, domestic tasks like that. Um, we also get personal shopping, so there's the service I've used myself, right? Um, when you're in a pinch, I'd forgotten my daughter's jacket on a trip to Melbourne, so I actually used Airtasker for that. Um, 
when I was at the airport, I realized I'd forgotten it. Uh, and I live in Sydney, by the way, so not a, not a long flight away. And um, I'd found by the time I was sitting on the plane waiting to take off, uh, we'd found somebody who was willing to do the job. And by the time we'd landed in Melbourne, uh, that person had been to the shop, bought the exact jacket that we wanted and delivered it to my uh, parents-in-law's house where I was staying. So uh, that was really great. Um, Another thing we've recently used it for is to, to book a, a face painter, a children's entertainer for, for my daughter's birthday party. So it's really a question of thinking, you know, what what's on your to-do list? Uh, what what services could you maybe use some help with? And reaching out to that, that huge community of people we have who are, who are happy to help and, and keen to make an income from, from using their skills to help you out. So that's quite extraordinary. So it can apply to just about any kind of work at all, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. And the way it works is is that you know anybody who wants a job done can what's called post a task, right? You you create a description of uh, the task that you would like completed, and individuals on the platform can make offers, uh, and you pick the one that you want, and you you arrange having the job done, you know, at the time and place of your convenience. So, how is Airtasker uh, growing? How has its growth globally? So, you know, we've had really remarkable growth in Australia over the last few years, um, the order of several hundred percent over the last few years, and it's, you know, a very uh, vibrant community in our major cities. Um, and, it, and it is an Australian company, so, so that's really our core market uh, that we were excited about. Um, but what's really thrilling is that I think over the last couple of years, especially uh, as the company has recognised the uh, success that it's had in the market and the, the global potential of it. Uh, I think we've set our sights a lot more broadly. And um, only a few months ago, we actually launched in the UK, in London. Um, and, you know, so far that's going really, really well. Uh, we're seeing huge growth there. Obviously, with a new marketplace, it's always a game of building up that volume, building up the marketplace liquidity over time. Uh, but Compared to the, the early years in Australia, what we're seeing is that, you know, because our product is more mature, because we're, we're more mature operationally, uh, the growth in, in the UK is, is far more rapid than we had here in Australia. And so we see, you know, massive potential uh, in the UK and, and also in, in other foreign markets as we expand. So our, our ambition is absolutely to be, you know, a global company where we provide this service um, in many different countries. I guess the U.S. would be in your sights, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the U.S. Is, is an interesting market. I think there, there are a number of local market conditions there that actually make it uh, a relatively difficult market to enter. Uh, but certainly, you know, it's, it's something that we discuss. And, um, you know, as, as we plot out how we launch, um, you know, that, that will be an, an act of consideration. Uh, I think what, one thing that's interesting about a service like Airtasker is that Although we're a software platform, there, there is an operational foundation as well. Uh, you know, we're, we're there uh, helping people connect in the physical world. Uh, we need to manage our community. We need to provide dispute resolution services. Uh, we need to, uh, you know, we offer services such as insurance and so on. Um, and so actually launching in a new country uh, is not simply a question of flicking a switch. It, it takes quite a a significant operational ground effort and that's something that's a competency that uh you know we've been building up and we're getting pretty good at now and so that's exciting i think as we are able to learn from launching in new countries and, and how we set up operationally we'll actually be able to accelerate uh, and expand our presence more rapidly 
And, of course, you would need all the backup facilities, like, for example, dispute resolution and insurance to actually keep going. Yeah, exactly right. And so, you know, in, in terms of launching in the UK, we do actually have a, a country operations team uh, on the ground there, uh, which is a, a number of people who, who are across, uh, yeah, a lot of these different things, uh, local market conditions, local deals, uh, insurance, dispute resolution, compliance with local laws, uh, and all the things like that that really take this from just uh, you know, a piece of software to what we really see is, like I said, building a, a community of trusted people who can help you out uh, with a, a really broad variety of tasks. And, and so that's something that we think is, you know, obviously it takes more effort, but over the long term we think is a great advantage for us as well because it, it means that uh, you know, we're much more than just uh, an app, right? Uh, there's actually a lot that goes into making our tasks Air task and successful and something we're getting increasingly good at. And it's something that goes beyond just mere software. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we, uh, our dispute resolution is augmented by software, which is, which is exciting. Uh, moderation of content, right? Um, we, we need to have a, a civil discourse and we don't want anything that's, that's illegal or against the, the terms of our platform. So content is moderated on the platform. Uh, and like I said, we, we do have groups of people who are responsible for that. Um, but on the technological side, it's actually quite exciting as well because um, we're using machine learning uh, to automatically moderate content, so offensive content, illegal content, uh, and that's actually got quite a, a high success rate. Uh, and so that's effectively making our, our human agents in moderation and in dispute resolution and so on more efficient at their jobs. Well, Yaniv, that sounds fascinating and uh... All credit to Airtasker and just keep, keep it going. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, thanks very much, Leon. I appreciate it. And now let's talk to economist, RMIT professor Sinclair Davidson. Well, Sinclair Davidson, we had the budget last week and it was exactly as you predicted. Uh, there was a surplus of $7.1 billion and, uh, for 2019-20. Uh, we uh, had money spent on $100 billion spent on infrastructure. We had lots of apprenticeships, as exactly as you predicted. Uh, what's your view about it? Um, well, the it's, 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 it's very strange to sitting listening to a budget speech, um, as you do, of course, and uh, it all comes through more or less exactly as you predicted. It's uh, uh, quite unusual, and, and I wish I'd bought uh, uh, – I was as good at the stock market. Um, so the, <clears throat> the, the issue to me is that this is an election budget, um, and also it was a budget whereby the government wanted to start demonstrating its economic credentials. And while I was listening to the budget, it, it, it almost took me back to the, the, the good old days of, of Peter Costello, where towards the end of the Howard era, there was money everywhere, money to be spent on everybody and everything. And that's what happened. Um, there was a, a, a surplus and then money for everybody, um, spending on everything. And um, the, the, the election aspect of it is taking the lessons of the last two big state government elections. So we had a, a, a state government election here in, in Victoria in November, and just a few weeks ago we had one in New South Wales. And in both instances the government was returned, and in both instances governments were returned promising to spend big on infrastructure. That's interesting, uh, but uh, the, there are underlying... Uh, Underlying all the figures is an economic picture which isn't exactly wildly reassuring. And I go to the 
budget papers, um, I mean, it's in bad news for state government. This is particularly true of the GST, which is passed on to all states, and the telltale evidence is stacked away in the budget paper estimates of GST collections, uh, which is as good an indication as any for consumer confidence and spending. And uh, Treasury expects GST collection over the next four years to be a total of $10.3 billion lower than in its MYFO estimates just four months ago. Yes, it's, it's, it's one of those strange things. When, we, when the GST came in uh, in 2000, everybody believed this was going to be the super growth tax that would carry us forward and all this sort of stuff. It actually turns out that um, the, the, the GST over the last couple of years has not been collecting as much money as people kind of thought. And there, there, there is this argument that somehow the GST has been eroded, that, that people are spending more money on things that are not GSTable. So, for example, health. Um, is is exempt from the the the, the package. So. Um it is interesting that state governments will be getting less money from the GST over time. But on the other hand, the federal government, to a large extent, is now spending money on areas that is more strictly state government orientated. So, for example, a lot of the infrastructure spending in, this, in, in the budget that was announced last Tuesday is really state government stuff. They should be doing that sort of thing, not the federal government. So, you know, there's swings and roundabouts. Well, yes, uh, I mean, high, I mean, higher government revenues from a second win in the mining boom, chiefly from strong iron ore and coal prices, though, won't last. And um, uh, the budget papers say future governments should not rely on them. Well, yes, <laughs> but we know this already. But I, I think from the from the government's perspective, they will last long enough, which is between now and uh, the next federal election, or, or at least for for for, for another year or so. Um, the money is there, and it's going to be spent. And that was the whole objective of the of, of the budget that, that was announced last week: is to actually say to people, reassure them, you know, the um, you know, it's it's the hey baby, we're back sort of sort of budget. Um, and, and, and that's what they did. And I was listening to, to Mr. Frydenberg kind of thinking the, the way you're talking and, and, and the way you're announcing things and, and what you are doing, it's, it's like there's a lot of money. And in actual fact, there actually isn't a lot of money. Uh, one of the things that is happening is that the I, I suspect the debt is going to be paid off slower over time. So in, in actual fact, um, the, the, the surpluses are, are skinny, as, as they've been described, um, and spending is huge, and the slack factor here is the debt. And, and based upon the outcomes of the, of the Victorian and New South Wales elections, um, the, the state government elections, I think the government and I think a lot of people are taking the view that the electorate isn't as concerned about debt now as they might have been 10 years ago. So when do you see debt being paid off? Well, the, the, the budget paper suggests it's going to be paid off in 2030. So that is, what, 11 years down the track. Now, I was, I was under the impression that it would be paid off sort of the mid-decade or towards the end of, 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 of the next decade. They're now promising to be paid at the end of the next decade. And bearing in mind, of course, that's if nothing else goes wrong, if the economy doesn't tank. Uh, we are hearing sort of word and rumours that there might be a recession down the track overseas. Um, Australia's had, what, 20-odd years, 27 years? 28 years. 28 years um, of, of, of recession-proof growth. Um, that, of course, can change at any time. I mean, I, I, we shouldn't be complacent. So right now, right now the debt, pardon me, is, is pushing out to another 11 years. The, the good thing about the budget, I have to say, was the, uh, uh, the announced tax rates, uh, the, the ab- abolition of the 37.5% rate, the uh, reduction of 32.5% down to, to 30%. That, to a large extent, is reversing one of the changes that came in with the carbon tax in 
was it 2010, 2011, somewhere around about there, when, when they brought in the carbon tax, they changed those rates. Uh, that's going back and pushing out the, the threshold to $200,000. I really liked that. I thought that was a good thing to be doing. What I disliked about it is coming in in 2024, which is actually three elections away. Um, so uh, that... That's a promise on the never-never. But nonetheless, it's a good reform to actually follow through. I would have been doing that from next year onwards. Well, the $64 question is, uh, do you expect Labor would keep that promise? Uh, no, I don't. Um, I, I, I think uh, uh, Bill Shorten had the opportunity to match that promise on Thursday night in his reply speech, which there, that was the one thing I did get wrong. I actually expected the, the election to be called before his reply speech. Um, he, he, he had the opportunity to announce that in the reply speech. He, he announced a lot of things in the, in, in the reply speech where, where he said um, everybody who, who's in line for a tax cut now will get the tax cut. So he's, he's matched the government on, on many of their of the, uh Promises going forward, um, and then he also increased, uh, announced an increase in in in, in a payment to people below. I think it was thirty two thousand dollars. So um, he, he could have, and I, I don't think he's going to match that. And more or less, he doesn't want to because he's he's also got spending plans. Um, he's actually effectively announced a whole bunch of other tax increases um, that, that that will be coming in. So he's he's got a bigger pot of money to spend. Now uh, the, the government's immediate challenge, and I guess Bill Shorten's immediate challenge, will be aside from trying to win the election, uh, will be to stimulate the economy that's been turning south since uh, July the 1st last year. Well, I, I think the economy's been slowing down. I think the... I mean, the... To, to a large extent, this is probably driven by housing market concerns. The housing market's coming off. People are feeling a bit poorer. People, when selling their homes, don't have as much to spend as they thought they would have. I would hold off stimulating the economy per se. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of sort of trying to generate artificial economic activity. I think if there is spending to be done that's necessary, it should be done. Um, there, there are good arguments about some of the infrastructure that, that is coming in anyway. Um, some of it is, is going to be pork barreling. We, we know that already. Um, and I actually think that um, people should start getting angry about pork barreling. I mean, if you live in a marginal electorate, all of a sudden you're going to have fantastic things built in your electorate. Where in actual fact, uh, where stuff needs to be built and where it is often built is not always the same thing. So people should be should be starting to ask tough questions about that. But I, I would try to stay away from stimulating the economy. I would just say to people, look, you know, business as usual. If if you are if you are going to spend, spend, and if you're going to save, save. But uh, Treasury's best guess about uh, consumption growth that it will be actually considerably worse in the new financial year than it's been 2018-19, which is disastrous news for retailers. Yes. And uh, bad news for the economy. Well, not necessarily bad news for the economy. It depends what, what what gets done with that money. It might be spent somewhere else. It it might be saved and spent at a later time. Um, I, I, I again, I, I kind of think trying to change people people's preferences for political purposes is is always a bad idea. Um, yes, it's bad news for retailers, but we know the retail sector is under pressure already, mostly from from, from online online shopping. That uh, that though could hit the government coffers, couldn't it? Uh, oh, yes, it could. It could, but at the same time, bear in mind, corporate profitability is up. So they're, they're, they're making a lot of money out of the corporate income tax. And of course, if if, if, if we just have a look, um, unemployment at 5% is pretty good. I think the government is forecasting an increase in wage growth, which may be a bit uh, 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 optimistic, perhaps. Oh, well, 3.5%. Yes, yes, yes. Well, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd love to have a 3.5% salary increase, and wouldn't we all? Um, 
that's probably on the optimistic side. But at the same time, unemployment is, by Australian standards, pretty low. Uh, Not as low as as it has been. It's still pretty low. And as long as that number, uh, the unemployment figure, doesn't actually jump up, um, the money's still going to be rolling into the government's coffers, uh, not as fast as they would like, of course. But isn't that always true? None of us get as money as quickly as we would like to get it. Well, Sinclair Davidson, it will be fascinating to watch the electorate's response to the budget. It will be. Next few weeks. It will be indeed. The the uh, betting market odds haven't changed at all. So they're exactly where they were last week, but some of the polls seem to be going in the government's favour. Um, it's fascinating if you love watching elections and you love the interaction between politics and economics. Well, Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well... President Donald Trump's top economic advisor says the US and China are closer and closer to a trade deal and that top-tier officials will be talking again this week via a lot of teleconferencing. Larry Kudlow's guarded optimism came after China's state-run Xinhua news agency reported that progress was made during talks in Washington that ended Friday. High-level US and Chinese officials met on the heels of discussions in Beijing the previous week. Chinese negotiators, led by Vice Premier Liu He and the US counterparts, discussed the text of an agreement regarding technology transfers, intellectual property protections, non-tariff measures, services, agriculture, trade balance and enforcement. And the International Monetary Fund cut its global growth outlook for the third time in six months to the weakest pace since the global financial crisis, pointing to Brexit-related uncertainties and trade tensions between the US and China as fueling its downgrade. The IMF projects global economic growth of 3.3% this year, down from the 3.5% it saw back in January. And Britain is likely to be offered a final long extension ending on the 31st of December, after the EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, failed to convince the bloc's capitals that Theresa May has a plan to break the Brexit impasse. A number of member states, most prominently France, along with Slovenia, Greece, Austria and Spain, remain sceptical about a lengthy extension, citing the risks to the EU of Britain behaving badly. And if the Australian government was looking for the federal budget to boost confidence among Australians, it'll be disappointed with confidence levels falling, according to the latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index. The headline confidence reading slipped 1.3% to 113.2, leaving it marginally above average levels. Hinting that tax relief contained in the budget missed the mark, views towards current family finances dipped 1.3%. On the other hand, the Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiment rose 1.9%, to 100.7 in April from 98.8 in March. While the month-to-month rise in sentiment is fairly muted, the survey details suggest the budget was well received. And Australian home lending bounced in February, coinciding with the conclusion of the Banking and Financial Services Royal Commission. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the value of new loans to purchase owner-occupied dwellings rose 3.4% to $12.9 billion dollars, after seasonal adjustments, faster than the increase in new finance to purchase an investment property, which rose by a smaller 0.9% to $4.74 billion. Markets have been expecting the value of owner-occupying lending to increase by 1%, with lending to investors seeing dipping by further 0.5%.
Despite the modest rebound in lending to both groups during February, total lending still remains well below the levels of a year earlier, reflecting the impact of tighter lending standards, fewer property transactions taking place, less activity from local and offshore investors, along with some prospective buyers delaying their purchase in anticipation of further price falls ahead. Excluding refinancing, the ABS said the value of owner-occupier and investor lending tumbled 13.9% and 29.1% respectively from February 2018. And the March CoreLogic Hedonic Home Value Index results show decline across capital cities led by Sydney and Melbourne. The National Index for Home Values has fallen for a year and a half. The decline has been sharper in house values compared with apartment values. House values have fallen by over 9% from their peak in late 2017, while apartment values are down around 6% from their peak. After a 12.8% rise in 2017, house values across Sydney declined 5.5% in 2018, and are forecast to fall a further 9.3% in 2019, before a slow recovery in 2020. Apartment values are set to decline at a smaller pace, down 5.9% in 2019, followed by a slow recovery in 2020. House values in Melbourne are forecast to decline sharply in 2019, following a modest correction in 2018. The majority of the decline and slowdown will be concentrated in the inner Melbourne regions. Melbourne's apartment market is also expected to correct in 2019 and 20, following a sharp slowdown last year. House values across Brisbane are forecast to see a correction in 2019, with strength in East Brisbane offset by declines elsewhere. The worst is likely over for Brisbane's apartment market. Apartment values in Brisbane are tipped to recover by 0.9% in 2019, followed by stronger growth of 5.8% in 2020. And tumbling house prices, a slowing economy and cash-strapped households crying out for a pay increase will confront whoever wins next month's election with warnings of more financial pain facing the country. Reports from the International Monetary Fund, Moody's Analytics and S&P Global point to a growing problem for the Prime Minister Scott Morrison or Labor leader Bill Shorten that also puts at risk the Coalition's weak old budget. The IMF believes the Australian economy will grow by just 2.1% this calendar year, short of what was predicted in the budget, and well down on the 2.8% the IMF forecast in October last year. Such sluggish growth would push up the nation's jobless rate and in turn remove upward pressure on wages that have failed to grow in line with budget expectations for the past six years. Ratings agency S&P, in a report into risks facing Australian businesses, said the lack of wages growth was behind the rise of thrifty consumers who were looking for ways to reduce their spending. Describing consumer sentiment as listless, the agency said household consumption was likely to edge down because people simply did not have extra money to spend while the fall in house prices was encouraging them to lift their savings level. And worse is to come with the property market downturn. In January, Moody's forecast Sydney house prices would drop by 3.3% through 2019. It now says the drop-off will be 9.3%. Melbourne's drop-off is even more acute with the agency now predicting an 11.4% fall in the city's house prices. In January, it was tipping a 6% decline. And ANZ Australian job advertisements fell by a further 1.7% in March, to be down 6% for the year. In trend terms, 
Job ads were flat for the month and on a year-to-year -year basis fell by 3.4%. And Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has delivered a personal guarantee that workers will secure a $1,080 tax cut from July, regardless of the election date. The plan is likely to include instructing the Australian Tax Office to plan for the tax cuts now and deliver them administratively on the proviso that both sides of politics support the measure. It means 10 million Australians should expect to secure a benefit when they lodge their tax return. While it's still possible the laws could pass Parliament before the 1st of July, the ATO generally needs at least a month to get the systems up and running for a tax change so close to July the 1st. Mr Frydenberg offered the pledge on Sunday after Labor's Treasury spokesman Chris Bowen raised concerns that the longer the government waited to call the election, the bigger the risk the laws could not pass by July the 1st. And Labor has released costings showing that Stage 3 of the government's tax cuts, a 30% flat rate for the vast majority of workers, would soon cost $30 billion a year, as it doubled down on its refusal to adopt the cuts if it wins the election. While Labor will go to the election matching or improving on the tax cut for people earning up to $120,000, it has also ruled out adopting Stage 2, which would benefit middle-income earners such as senior nurses, teachers and police officers, as well as higher-income earners. The Australian Labor Party has said it will review the economics of the MBN, including the implications of the multi-technology mix on the cash flow of the MBN Co, the company which is rolling out the network if it were voted into office in the forthcoming federal election. No mention was made of a possible write-down of the value of the network, which has been canvassed quite a few times. Opposition leader Bill Shorten and Shadow Communications Minister Michelle Rowland said the party would look at the capital structure, pricing evolution, and whether the MBN Co was able to invest in future infrastructure upgrades under a number of market scenarios. They jointly announced the party's plan to improve the MBN at a conference in Sydney saying they were putting forth a credible policy to make the best of the existing situation. And Chinese investment in Australia dropped by more than 36% in 2018 to its second lowest level since the global financial crisis of 2008. The latest report from KPMG and the University of Sydney Business School found that Chinese firms invested a total of $8.2 billion in Australia last year, down from $13 billion a year before. That was despite Chinese foreign investment globally increasing by 4.2% last year. Mining led the decline, with a 90% slump in investment to $464 million, a similar level to 2016. Bear in mind, the 2017 result was only boosted by Yankol's $3.4 billion acquisition of Rio Tinto's thermal coal assets. Commercial real estate also posted a decline, with data compiled with the assistance of real estate firm Knight Frank showing China's investment fell from $4.4 billion in 2017 to $3 billion last year. This segment includes office buildings and other commercial properties. The fall in Chinese commercial real estate investment was not specific to Australia, which retains an 11% share of China's foreign investment in this sector. Instead, it reflected a general decline in Chinese offshore investment in this area as China's government limited both developers and individuals from getting money out of the country for this purpose. While these two traditionally strong areas of Chinese investment in Australia waned last year, there was a strong flow of money into healthcare. The study showed three mega deals of more than $500 million saw Chinese investment in this sector more than double 
to $3.4 billion, accounting for nearly 42% of China's total investment into Australia last year. And Wynn Resorts is pulling the plug on a potential takeover of Australian gambling giant Crown Resorts, with it been seen as fetching about $7.1 billion or $10 billion Aussie. Both companies had previously confirmed the talks. Following the premature disclosure of preliminary discussions, Wynn Resorts has terminated all discussions with Crown Resorts concerning any transaction. Las Vegas-based Wynn said in a statement, The on-off talks leave Crown's immediate future in doubt, with owner James Packer retreating out of the market. While discussions with Wynn have broken down, for now at least, Crown's engagement with a US suitor signalled that the Australian company was willing to talk sale terms with an interested party. Even before Wynn pulled out of the discussions, analysts at Deutsche Bank said other potential buyers of Crown might emerge. They could include Hard Rock International, Malaysia casino operator Genting BH and private equity firms. And Woolworths has increased its lead as Australia's top grocery retailer increasing its share of Australia's total grocery market to 34% in 2018, up 1.4 percentage points from a year ago, according to Roy Morgan's latest survey data. While Woolworths increased its market share, the newly independent Coles share of 27.6% of the total grocery market fell 1.6 percentage points. German supermarket Aldi has had a good year in 2018, growing its market share to 11.4 points, up 0.5 percentage points from a year ago. The other winners over the past year were other supermarkets outside the Big Four, such as Foodland and Foodworks, which increased their share of the total grocery market to 9.1%, up 1.2 percentage points, while IGA's grocery share was down 0.4 percentage points to 7.1%. And Adani has been given Commonwealth approval to start building its Queensland coal mine in a victory for the controversial project. The Environment Minister Melissa Price has given the green line to the project's groundwater management plans. The future of the proposal for central Queensland now rests with the state government, having received the final federal approvals needed before construction can begin. The Environment Minister was under pressure from Queensland colleagues to sign off on the plans before the government calls the election and enters caretaker mode. Ms Price said in a statement that she had accepted the advice of the CSIRO and Geoscience Australia, which both gave the plan the green light. And Domino's Pizza Enterprises is taking a bigger slice of the European pizza market by buying the master franchise rights for Domino's Pizza brand in Denmark. Domino's said it had agreed to pay 2.5 million euro or $4 million Aussie to acquire the company-owned store and other assets of Domino's Pizza Scandinavia, which went into administration early last month and has ceased trading. Domino's has signed a master franchise agreement in Denmark with Domino's Pizza Inc. for up to 25 years, comprising an initial term of 15 years, with an option to renew for a further 10 years. Australia's largest pizza franchiser expects to restart operations in Denmark with about 20 stores within the next years, using its expertise to reinvigorate the Domino's business. And that's it for this week. And next week I have a terrific interview with Jane Robbins, a buyer's agent for the informedbuyer.com.au, giving insights into what investors need to do when buying into the Australian property market. And I'll have a terrific interview with AMP Capital Economist Shane Oliver. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a great week. Take care, be good, and looking forward to bringing you talking business next week. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 